Also, if you have prayer requests of your own and you would like us to be praying for you, your family, someone that you care about, uh, there are three different ways you can get us prayer requests. The very best way is to go to the website, click on the prayer tab, and we can certainly uh, pray for you that way. You can also make a, uh, a an appointment at the Connection Cafe, uh, especially if you need to talk to me about it for whatever reason so that we truly understand what to pray for. Um, or you can simply go in the chat on this Zoom and put it in there. We'll record it. We'll, we'll make sure it's written down and we will pray for you the next time that we meet. All right, so tonight we will be continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're gonna be uh, starting Acts chapter eight. Uh, we're gonna be looking at the first eight verses. Uh, and Gina, if you are on, would you open us up in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to come to open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to the truth of your word. May we be changed by the power of your word. God, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for those of you who maybe are on for the first time, Gina happens to be my sister. So I love it when my sister prays. She is quite a prayer warrior. All right. So... <clears throat> Recently, I told uh, all of you uh, that we can expect in the year 2021 for give or take about 3,000 Christians to be martyred for their faith worldwide. Uh, that's roughly the average uh, in the last few years. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to increase that number uh, because just in the first four months of 2021, there have been over 1,470 Nigerian Christians killed by Islamic jihadists alone. So, um, and an additional 2,200 Nigerian Christians have been abducted and are unaccounted for. So this looks like it's gonna be a, a very bad year for Christian martyrdom. Um, and by the way, uh, I didn't mention this last time, but about 80% of all of the martyrs throughout Christian history, so in other words, over the last 2,000 years, about 80% of the Christians who are killed for their faith, about 80% of them are killed by the ruling powers, by the state, by the government, just so you have a sense of how big an issue this is and how it usually plays out for us. Um, since last Sunday, I have also read three articles about pastors being arrested in other countries. Uh, one was in China, one was in Egypt, and this was the third story. Uh, this is Pastor Archer Palowski. Uh, he and his brother, Dawid Palowski, um, have been arrested for holding an illegal in-person gathering. Um, both of them are natives of Poland, and as you can see, he's uh, probably roughly my age. And so both of those men grew up in under Soviet rule, and they understand what it's like to be oppressed by a government, which is exactly why their entire family emigrated to Calgary, Canada. And that's where they were arrested. Calgary, Canada, just 1,500 miles from Dallas, only 200 miles from the U.S. border. 
much like the state of California was trying to, to shut down churches, Canada is doing the same thing, uh, except that the persecution has now elevated to the point where pastors are being arrested. And by the way, this is not the first pastor arresting in Canada. It's actually the second. So, um, you know, the courts in California eventually sided with the churches that they that the state could not close them down. Um, so we need to be hoping and praying that our Canadian brothers and sisters experience the same justice in the Canadian courts. So let's see what this has to do with tonight's verses. Back in February, we started uh, our study of the book of Acts. And when we did that, I introduced a character to Steepleist Church, whom I call the Asian Spice Trader. And if you were not with us back in February, I want you to know that this character is fictitious. Okay, I, I created him. I also want you to really understand why I created him. People connect with stories. You know, the Old Testament was passed down through the generation uh, by Jewish parents telling their children the stories in the Bible. And then those children would grow up and they would share those stories with their children. And usually those are true stories about real people in history, like Abraham and Noah and Jonah and so many others that we know. Um, they're usually about real people. Sometimes, however, God uses stories to illustrate a biblical concept, a biblical concept that were not about real people. For example, um, if we take Jesus' parable of the two sons that we find in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, this is what Jesus said. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So this was a fictional story that illustrated a biblical concept. Jesus was not actually referring to a real family, okay? Jesus did this because the story connects us to real-life examples of a concept that he wanted us to understand. Also, we remember the story, making it easier to remember the truth the Bible teaches. And if you think about the parables, you don't first think about, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus leaves the, the 99 and searches for the one or uh, the lady who lost the coin. We don't think about the biblical concept. We think about the story. And I want you to know that's what I'm doing with the story of the spice trader. My hope is that you will connect to the story 
and remember it. I also want to try to connect you to the emotion and context of the story. Sometimes we understand the scripture we read in our minds, but it really doesn't become part of our heart because it's difficult for us to imagine what it would have been like to actually live through such a thing. So I hope to bring this passage in Acts to life tonight. Um, and for those who missed the first episodes of The Spice Trader, those were back on February 14th and 21st. Um, and they are available if you would like to go listen to them at steeplelistchurch.com. Uh, I will tell you that we only can hold so many videos on the website. Uh, I think we're into February now. So if you would like to listen to those, you're probably going to want to do it sooner rather than later, but they are available. Um, I'm also going to do, as I start this story night, I'm going to do a quick recap uh, of the story to kind of bring you up to speed on tonight's scripture. So here goes. I want you to come with me on a journey 2,000 years in the past. And I want you to imagine that you're Jewish, that you are a Jew, but you don't live in Jerusalem or even Judea. You live in Asia because you're a spice trader and that's where the spices are. So generations ago, your family moved to Asia and you make pilgrimages to other places, including Jerusalem. And this year, you've traveled to Jerusalem for the 50-day period between Passover and Pentecost. The journey took weeks, but you could make as much as half a year's income in just seven weeks selling your spices because of all of the Jews who have come to Jerusalem. And they don't bring spices with them. It's too much to carry. So they... There is high demand during this time. You arrive in the holy city for Passover. But the day after Passover, this Jesus is brought before the Jewish leaders, accused of blasphemy for claiming to be God. You'd heard rumors about Jesus. You'd heard that he was able to perform miracles, but of course you didn't believe those. And you watched with the crowd, as Jesus is beaten, as he is drugged through the streets, having to carry part of his cross, and eventually is crucified. But then, as Jesus hung on the cross, something truly terrifying happened. The sky turned black. You were at your cart selling your spices and the earth begins to shake. And there was a great earthquake, so much so that your cart spills, your spices fly everywhere. You end up on the ground looking up at the sky. You knew this was not just some kind of earthquake. You, in your heart, somehow knew that this was some kind of punishment from God against Jerusalem and even more the next day, when you heard that the veil in the temple had been torn in two. Two days later, the city erupted again as Jesus' body had disappeared from his burial tomb, and rumors spread that he had risen from the dead. 
the next six weeks were full of stories of people meeting and even talking to the risen Jesus. Hundreds of stories. Even one of your Jewish friends tried to convince you that he had actually talked to Jesus. He, he said that Jesus was the Messiah, but you don't believe that. Then, on Pentecost morning, which is to be your last day in town, something truly incredible happened. You were in your room at the top of your building, and the sound of a great wind echoed through the entire city. But you realize it's, it's coming from the upper room of the building next door to where you were staying. And you remember seeing that there was a group of Galileans staying in that room. Then a fire appeared inside the room and somehow it divided and it settled on each of the men that were inside that room. And you didn't understand what was happening. So you rushed down to the street where you were literally joined by thousands of others to see what was happening. Then the Galileans emerged from inside their room and they began to speak, but they were not speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew, or, or even Greek, they were speaking in your language. Soon you realize that even though there are people in the crowd that speak more than a dozen different languages, each was hearing these Galileans speak in their own language. How could this be? The Galileans are talking about this Jesus again. You know, you, don't, you haven't believed the stories of the miracles before, but clearly this has to be some kind of a miracle. Could the stories about Jesus be true? That day, you are one of 3,000 who come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Your first mission was to run back back to your room to get to your family and tell them the good news that Jesus really is the Messiah. The stories are true. But when you get back to your room, you find out they've been listening out the windows and they already know what has happened. Within a few short minutes, the eternal destiny of your entire family is secure. All of you are now followers. Jesus. You had planned to go back to Asia this afternoon, but going back no longer seems like the right thing to do. How can you leave this new family? Family. That's it. All these people are somehow now your family. It really doesn't make sense, but somehow you know it's true. So you decided to stay in Jerusalem. Your newfound faith is more important than your career. It's more important than spices, even more important than carrying on the family tradition. You did find another spice trader who was traveling and, and you bought all the spices that he had with the money that you had made selling spices yourself. You know, because you bought it from a spice trader, the profit won't be as much as if you had brought them yourself from Asia, but it allowed you to make some extra money. You've also been helping a local merchant by selling wool fabric in the small towns outside Jerusalem while he works inside the city at his booth. 
you've made many relationships with the people in those towns and share more and more about Jesus and the acts of the apostles when you're in those towns speaking with people. You tell them how you and your friends prayed, and even though Peter and John were drugged before the Sanhedrin, that God heard your prayers and they were released. You tell them about the generosity of Barnabas, how he went and sold a field, and he took all the money from the, that, that transaction and he laid it at Peter's feet. And how it encouraged so many people and provided for so many people who were in need. You also tell them the story about Ananias and Sapphira, who tried to look good like Barnabas did. And how in the process they were struck down because they had lied to the Holy Spirit. Although that story usually takes some extra explaining. You tell them about so many people being healed, healed, and you never run out of these stories, one after another, healing after healing, many of which you witnessed yourself. You tell them that despite the persecution they face, how the apostles have stayed true to Jesus' mission of sharing the gospel and making disciples. The last time you were in a little town selling fabric, you were telling a cloakmaker about how the widows were not being fed in the best way and how the group commissioned what you're now calling deacons and how you were even nearby as they prayed to start their ministry and commissioned these men and that how you had come in agreement with the apostles' prayers and how they had done such a good job taking care of those widows. But then Stephen the leader of that group, had been arrested. And he had to go to court. He had, had to stand before that same Sanhedrin. And now Stephen has been stoned to death and has died. You know, being thrown in jail is one thing. Being murdered is quite another. You were friends with Stephen. Sometimes you would even help cook the food for the widows. You always snuck a little extra spice into the food so that the widows would get a little treat. But now Stephen is gone. You go with your Christian brothers to bury Stephen outside of town. You're covered in, in dirt as you've had to dig his grave. And, and that dirt is stuck to your face for the tears you shed while you were digging that grave for your friend. And after he's buried, and you're standing over the loss of your friend, a young man comes running to your group. He's, he's a young Christian man. He's part of your group. And, but he's panicked, and he's, he's talking so fast, you can't, you can't even understand what he's trying to tell you. But finally, you figure out what he's saying. Saul of Tarsus, the same man who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, is going from house to house in Jerusalem, and he is dragging out the Christians and taking them away. No one knows if they are alive or dead, only, only that they've been arrested. The entire city is in a panic. People are fleeing by the thousands. 
you yell goodbye to your friends as you gather up your shovel and your skin of water and water and you run back to town as fast as you can. You've got to find your family. Are they alive? Have they been arrested? Will, will you find them in time? Your legs and your lungs are burning, but you barely notice for the pain in your stomach that is telling you that your family is in danger. As you enter the city, you can't believe the chaos. People are running everywhere. Men, women, children, even sheep and goats are running wild. As you round a corner, a, a cart has overturned in front of you in the street. A man and his wife are, are frantically trying to get it back on its wheels while their children are picking up scattered clothes and fruit and one is even dragging some kind of a table through the dirt back towards the cart. The kids are crying and their father's eyes are wild with fear. And for a moment, you recall a time when you were a boy. Your father would take you trapping in the olive grove near the stream that ran through the hills west of town. You can still remember the sounds and the smells as you are walking in the woods looking for animal trails. When your dad would find just the right spot, he would set his trap and put in the bait. Usually a bit of fish from the day's catch would do the trick. Then you would set up camp for the night, hoping for a successful hunt. You can still remember that one night that is burned into your memory. It was early spring and you couldn't sleep that night, not because of the rocks under your mat or even the chill in the air. You couldn't get to sleep that night because your father had found the perfect spot for his trap and you just knew something would be caught by morning. What would it be? Then a screaming sound jolted you to attention. Your father was urging you to get up and get your sandals on. You're confused, partially from a lack of sleep, but more because of the screaming. Who was out here with you and, and why were they screaming? As you followed your, down, your dad down that trail, you finally realized that the screaming is some kind of animal. It almost sounded human. And as you approach the trap, its captor comes into view was a lynx and not just any lynx. It was one bigger than any you had ever seen or even heard about. She was like a small lion. She was so big. Her teeth were huge and sharp and she's making that screaming sound as you come up on her. But what held your attention was not her teeth or her claws. It was her eyes. They were wild. She looked like she was possessed by a demon. Then you saw the movement behind her. In the bushes was her cub, barely more than a newborn. A soft cry emits from its mouth, a cry for its mother. Your focus returns to the big cat, to those wild eyes. Those are the eyes you saw in the man trying to right 
his cart. Like the cat protecting its cub, this man was desperate to protect his family. Suddenly you're jolted back to reality as a ceramic vase crashes to the ground behind you, sending shards of the vase everywhere and the water it contained into the dirty street. You have to move. You have to find your family down the alleys and through the market. You weave your way back home. The whitewashed walls that always look so beautiful to you suddenly look like the walls of a tomb as you work your way through the holy city. Finally, you reach your door. It's locked. You cry out to your wife. Nothing. You cry out the names of your children. Nothing. You begin to pray, dear God, help me find my family. Please, Lord, let them be alive. Then you hear the timber fall from the other side of the door. Your heart leaps as the door opens and you see your wife. She pulls you inside, closing the door and wrapping her arms around your neck in one motion. You hold one another so tight. It's like you are one person and just for a moment time stands still then you come to your senses again are the kids okay is everyone all right your wife assures you that all are safe at least for the moment you find looking around that everything is already packed your wife has everyone ready to run it's time to go Taking one last look around, you make your way to a crack in the wall where it meets the ceiling. Your wife looks at you quizzically as you put your fingers in and come out with a small vial. You look at your wife and say, perfume for your birthday. I hid it so you wouldn't find it before then. A smile comes across her face and just for a moment, the, che the tears running down her cheeks are temporarily diverted by her upturned lips. Move, move, move. You have to move. As you get ready to leave, you tell the family the route you're going to take. You're heading for the north gate, the one that leads to Samaria. North, your wife asks, are, are you sure? You are. You tell your wife that somehow you just know that north is the way to go. Jesus told you, or God, or the Holy Spirit. I can't explain it. You say, I just know. Then we go north, she says. You're out the door, down the alley, first, in front of your family, children behind you and your wife behind them. Left, then right, another left, past Solomon's colonnade. Oh, you would miss this place. How many miracles have you seen take place here? Hundreds? How many lives changed forever in this place? How many souls saved? No time to ponder. Have to move. People are everywhere, running, screaming, trying to hide, trying to get away. Roman soldiers and Jews stopping people beating them. Then you see him, your friend, Samuel. You've helped him in the market 
and in the town selling, selling fabric and he's on the ground. He's not moving. There's blood. Oh, so much blood. His son, Jeremiah, is sitting near him. You can see he's been crying. He's not crying now. It's, it's as if he's all cried out. He looks numb. Jeremiah sees you, and the tears begin again. He's gone, he says. It's almost a whisper. He's gone. Jeremiah, you say, come with us. Jeremiah looks to his dad and, and then back to you. He's gone. Jeremiah is only 12. And his mother's been dead for five years. He has no one in Jerusalem. You reach down and you scoop the boy up in your arms. Holding him close, you start moving again. The North Gate, it's close. You're almost there. There are so many people flooding out the gate that it reminds you of water in a stream being funneled between two rocks. So you gather your family and you lock arms and you and your family exit as one. As the humanity exits the gate, they immediately fan out running in all directions. As a group, you and your family head to the road to Samaria. Not many are on this path and in fact, almost no one is right now. And for a moment, you second guess yourself. Did God really tell you to go to Samaria? Would that be right? Just then, a peace washes over you. You've never felt anything quite like this before. It's, it's not just peace, it's, it's purpose. It's direction. It's north. You're sure it's north. For nearly 20 minutes, you are moving as fast as the children's little legs will allow. Then you top a small hill and dare to look back over your shoulder. The hill is blocking your view of the city, which means that no one there can see you now either. So you slow to a walk. Day is starting to turn to dusk. Shadows are growing around you as the sky turns from blue to red to orange. No one is nearby. The kids, the kids need water. Your wife comes to you and takes Jeremiah from your arms. You forgot you were carrying him. How could you have carried him so far? He must weigh 70 pounds. It doesn't matter. God is with you. God is truly with you. It's been nearly a week since you fled Jerusalem now for Samaria. There you met a couple and their daughter. The man, Melech, told you an amazing story about the disciples and Jesus having come to his home. They lived in another town then, Sychar, and he had broken his leg when he was thrown off a horse Actually, he was stealing the horse, and he had stolen the horse after robbing a Jew on the side of the road. That Jew lay motionless on the ground after Melech's accomplice had pushed him, and he had fallen and hit his head. And from that day, Melech had always feared that that man was death because they left him naked 
and bleeding on the side of the road. Melek was riding that Jew's horse to a Roman outpost. He intended to sell it, but just 10 minutes into the trip, the horse reared up, threw him, and broke his leg. He had had to crawl on his elbows and forearms to the closest town and beg for a ride home. And after breaking his leg, Melek had lost everything. He couldn't even feed his own family. As you heard this story, at, at first you were concerned. He, he robbed a Jew? He was a, a criminal, maybe even a, a murderer? Then he told you how the disciples plowed and sowed his field and how eight of them had come and, and they had eaten with him. Jesus had known exactly who I was and what I had done, he said. He healed my leg and changed our family forever. Now the man was devoted to Torah and living a godly life. He told everyone how Jesus had changed him from a criminal to a righteous man. He then explained that he had sold his land in Sychar and moved to this place so his family could be closer to a synagogue that taught about Jesus. That's what their life was about now, Jesus. It was not a large home, but your family was welcome to stay with them until you figured things out. You had been very grateful for that. You also understood how Jesus could have transformed this man's life. He certainly had transformed your life. So for the last six days, you've helped around town, earning money to feed your family and give a little to the hosts as well. It hadn't been much, but you are grateful that God has given you something to share with this family that has shared so much with you. It, it almost feels like church back in Jerusalem, spending time with one another, learning about Jesus, praying together, sharing meals and the Lord's Supper together. This day, as you are cleaning up from the morning meal, there is a knock at the door. It's a friend of Melek's. He, he enters the home and he's vibrant, he's smiling, he's excited. Philip is here, he says excitedly. Philip the Apostle. Philip, you exclaim. I know Philip. Well, at least I've met him. He's here in Samaria? Yes, the man explains. He arrived this morning. Already he has driven the demon out of a man who was begging outside of town. They say you could hear the spirit shrieking from a mile away. I think that would have scared me to death. Then he healed my niece from a fever that she had had for three days. That's when I found out who he was, and I came here to tell you all the news. Melek, you met Philip, didn't you? Yes, Melek said, I met seven of the apostles and, and Jesus too. Let's go into town to see him. I'm coming with you, you say as you, you stand and grab your walking stick. If Philip is here, then the good news and great joy is coming with him. I wanted to use our spice trader to illustrate the verses we're going to be looking at tonight because I wanted to convey 
the emotions that would have been present in this scripture. So I want to go ahead and have us look at those right now. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So we find out here that Saul is now taking center stage in the book of Acts. And Saul, if you're not familiar with him, Saul was from Tarsus. That's modern day Turkey. Uh, he was a Pharisee and he was a student of Gamaliel, who, by the way, if that name sounds familiar, it's because we learned about him just a few weeks ago. He was one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, a very, very powerful Jewish leader. Um, and at the time considered uh, perhaps the, the strongest member of all the Pharisees. So Saul was a Jew, uh, but he was also a Roman citizen. And while we won't go into that tonight, that will be important as we study uh, moving forward in the book of Acts. He was smart, he was well-educated, and very, very well-versed in the scriptures. He was a Pharisee of the highest order, and he was considered uh, one of the most powerful of the up-and-coming leaders among the Jews. And he had not only the skills and zeal to persecute Christians, he had all the backing of the Sanhedrin, and that was important because that basically made it lawful for him to do what he was doing. So the Christians were scattered everywhere. So here's my first question tonight for you to consider. How would you respond if Christians were being driven out of your city? Would you flee? Would you fight? Would you renounce your faith? Something to consider. In the scripture, we also hear about the first of the apostles leaving Jerusalem. Philip heads down to Samaria, or I should say up to Samaria. And for clarification, if you're not quite sure about what Samaria is, it, uh, uh, Samaria is an area um, in between Galilee and Jerusalem. And it's an area where Jews have intermarried with pagans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated Samaritans. They were quite at odds with one another. In fact, they would be for many centuries after this was written. It would be like us traveling to a place like Iraq, where most of the people there hated us and vice versa. Which begs my second question for tonight. If God, God, if God told you to go someplace hostile to the gospel, would you go? Would you go to Iraq? Philip did go. 
And while he is there, he performs great miracles. So I want you to think about what has happened. Just in eight chapters of the book of Acts, think what has happened to the church. The Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles. The Holy Spirit has come to man. He has come to earth. The Christian church has been formed, and the church has grown, even, I would say, exploded as it's grown. It has grown like crazy. Christians have been discipled, and disciples are creating other disciples. In other words, the Christians are helping others learn how to live like Christians. Then Saul shows up, and, and almost like a bomb exploding the Christians are scattered to all the ends of the earth. But unlike today, they're not just any Christians. They're not what I like to call nominal Christians. They're not just people who go to church on Sunday. They're not just folks that, you know, kind of grew up in church. These are Christians who have been trained. These are Christians who are not ashamed of the gospel. They're Christians who regularly share the good news. They're evangelistic. They're telling others about Jesus. So looking back, we can see that this is all part of God's perfect plan to spread the good news to every man, woman, and child on earth. And I want us to look one more time at verse 8. Luke wrote, so there was great joy in that city. Jesus brings great joy. And when we share the good news, we bring great joy. So this is my last question for you tonight. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to share the good news and bring great joy to others? Let's pray that we can do that very thing. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing the Christians to be scattered. Thank you that your word would, would go out and that it would enter so many cities and so many places. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. Us, Lord, I don't, I don't think anybody on the Zoom is of Jewish descent. We're Gentiles, at least most of us are. We would never have heard the good news had you not allowed Saul to persecute the church, had you not allowed those Christians to be scattered, had you not allowed all those things to happen, we might not know the good news. Thank you, Lord, that, that we do. Thank you that we've heard about Jesus. Thank you that you love us so much that you wanted to make absolutely sure that we had the opportunity to hear about your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Next steps. What did you identify with in this story? Is God maybe calling you to Samaria? Are you supposed to go somewhere to bring the good news and great joy? Maybe someplace you don't really want to go? What's stopping you from doing that? If that's what you're called to do, what's stopping you?
or maybe you're not exactly sure what the good news is. Um, do you need help understanding the message so that you can share it with others? If that's you, please make an appointment at the Connection Cafe because I would love to make sure that you learn the word that you need. You can make it part of who you are. You can hide it in your heart so that when you get the opportunity to share it with others, it'll be there for you, ready to be shared. For some of you, you have not yet experienced the great joy that comes from a relationship with Jesus. And, and honestly, you, you can't even imagine how powerful this joy is. If that's you, I want you to stay on this Zoom when everyone else drops off. And I'll walk you through it. I will help you experience the great joy that only comes from God himself. Last week, we talked about doing something to glorify God during the week. So what did you do to glorify God last week? If you did something, go to the chat. Please encourage the others on this Zoom. Tell us what you did. And if you didn't follow through, why not? What held you back? What can you do to glorify God this week? What would possibly keep you from doing that? So I want you to think about it this week. Where can you go? Who can you talk to? Even if it's on the phone, who can you text encouragement to? Who can you love? You know, Knowing the word benefits no one if we don't share it. If you're already saved, even being here tonight, even learning more about God, it doesn't make you any better. It doesn't help. It doesn't make God love you anymore. You, he can't love you any more than he already does. So share the wonderful good news that he has given you, the great joy he has given you. So many people are desperate for that. Next week is Pentecost, and we're going to divert from our study in the book of Acts uh, to find out why this is such a special holy day. So don't miss it. Thank you. We love you, and we'll see you next week. God bless.